Good morning. My name is Zach. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. If you would, open with me to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Elbert is out for the month of July, um, but we are back in our summer psalm series. And here in July, Brian and I are going to dance around a scene between two books in the book of Psalms. We've said it before, but it bears repeating. Psalms is actually a collection of five books. And so we're going to be right between books three and books four. Um, it's Psalm 88 last week, and today I'm going to be in Psalm 91. And as we transition into book four, book four can be thought of as a book of reorientation. For the people of Israel, book three, the themes of, of the Psalms in book three really revolve a lot around the fall of the house of David. There was supposed to be a king from David's family on the throne for eternity, and yet they were carried off into Babylon. And so book three is thematically linked around that. And book four is songs for people who feel like the world is disintegrating around them. It's a, it, there's, it's a book of psalms of reorientation, reintegration. That's what book four is. And so Psalm 91 is the second psalm of book four. And so as we consider Psalm 91 today, we're going to see how God sings a song of hope over those who are threatened by danger. A song of hope over those who are threatened by danger, whether that's internal danger, external danger, or spiritual danger. So, if you would, pray with me, and then we're going to read Psalm 91 together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are Almighty, Yahweh, the Most High God. And not only that, Lord, you are our God. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to read beautiful things in your word. I pray that you would soften our heart and even my heart as I preach to receive this. I pray that you would calm our troubled minds, bodies, by your spirit. I pray for rest, Lord, as we commune together in worship and commune in your word. I do pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hands and our feet so that we would leave here Lord, to live like people who know that you sing over us. Lord, thank you especially that you use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. I do pray, Lord, um, that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight and yours alone today. Thank you for the privilege of shepherding your people. I pray, Lord, that they would be blessed by these words. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. Let's read Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. 
On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is God's word. In August of 2016, I found myself on a boat holding my newborn son. We were on Smith Lake in Alabama. It's a 21,000 acre long winding lake. We had rented a pontoon boat from a man named Squirrel at Squirrel's Marina. Um, And what we didn't know is that a lightning storm was rolling in. So if you imagine a long winding lake where we're staying is over here and we're on the far end and we start to see the dark clouds rolling in, the lightning starting to strike. We're on the boat. I have my newborn son. He's a couple of months old. I believe my four-year-old daughter, my daughter's cousins, and some more of Kristen's family, my wife Kristen's family. And as I see the storm rolling in, we turn around um, their uncle, my, my kid's uncle is driving, Kristen's brother, and we start driving as fast as this little boat will take us, which is not very fast. And in my head, all kinds of thoughts start to pop in. It's one thing for me to foolishly stay out in a thunderstorm, which I have. It's another thing when my family and their cousins and my wife are there on the boat with me. When you're confronted with danger, when you're confronted with a threat to your very life, what goes on inside of you? What happens to you in that moment when you have nowhere to turn, nowhere to hide, no shelter to seek? When you look in the face of real or imagined danger, what happens? John Calvin, writing on Psalm 91, says this, We boast much of our courage so long as we remain at distance from the scene of danger. I can talk all day about my courage until the rubber meets the road and I'm staring danger right in the face. Scripture gives voice of people who face danger all throughout it. And we hear them say things like this, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will you be compassionate to us? Will you remember our frailty? Will you be true to yourself as just and righteous and loving and faithful? What happened to me on the boat that day as I'm holding my son was that feeling of anticipatory fear. What if? What will I do if this happens? If that happens? And I start the worst case scenario cycle where I start thinking about all the things that could go wrong. What if? Have you been there? So we turn one of the corners in the lake and we see Squirrels Marina right up there on the left. And we pull in as fast as we can and a very small man in a very large forklift comes out. We hop out of the boat. We run in. The sheets of rain are pouring in. Right as we're running in, we run into the holding bay and Squirrel picks up the boat and I've never seen a forklift move this fast and he runs in right behind us and pulls in to the holding bay where we're sitting there shivering and very thankful. We took shelter, the only shelter we could find. Redeemer, I don't know what kind of threats you are experiencing right now. Some relational, 
some financial. For others, the threat of physical violence is very real to you. Some carry in their heart this constant sense of danger, whether it's there or not. For some of you, you experience the terror of the night, that sleepless dread of what might happen the next day. And for some of you, the threat of spiritual warfare is not hypothetical. Psalm 91 is a song for those threatened by danger. And so as we consider it today, I hope that you know that when danger is near, when you are threatened by internal, external, or spiritual danger, you can take shelter in his shadow and you can take courage in his cross. Take shelter in his shadow and take courage in his cross. We see the psalmist taking shelter in his shadow in verses 1 through 8, and then we turn for 9 through 16 and learn that we can take courage in his cross. So look with me at the text. When danger is near, take shelter in his shadow. Let's look at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Sometimes God's word shows us that common sense is not so common. I mean, I know that on a deeply personal level. Just ask my wife, right? Sometimes common sense just isn't quite there. This is a common sense statement. But let's not brush past it. Let's look closer. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. There's a a verb change there. From dwelling, which has to do with just sitting, to abiding, which carries with it the sense of staying overnight. What does this mean? Well, just to put it bluntly, if you want to enjoy the shade, you must stand under shelter. If I put myself out in the rain, I shouldn't be surprised if I get wet. Take shelter on the Almighty and you will enjoy his shadow. Another way to translate this is whoever sits in the hidden place of God will be safe overnight in the shade. And that shade being like that good kind of darkness that we need to rest. When you sleep, you need darkness. Most of us do. It's that good kind of darkness, that good kind of shade that we can rest in God. But place, look with me at verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. To place ourselves under shelter requires two things. We must admit that we actually need protection. If we don't believe we need to be protected, why would we ever take shelter? And two, we have to trust that that's in the shelter's strength and its capacity to protect us. We must know that we need protection in the first place, and we must trust that the shelter we are taking can and will protect us. And when the psalmist describes God as a refuge and a fortress, he is expressing that kind of profound trust in who God is. God is able to keep me safe. But how? How do we take shelter in the shadow of the Almighty? That's verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 8 go through and explain for us in various uh, metaphors and illustrations of what it looks like and the types of things that we take shelter from in the Lord. What kinds of things? How the Lord is trustworthy and how he proves himself trustworthy. The ways he already does and continues to guard his own in the face of danger. And we see three primary types of threat here. Internal, external, and spiritual. Let's walk just verse by verse through this and see what the psalmist is telling us. Verse 3. 
for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Deliverance in the image here is that of a net and a bird, where the bird has no idea what's happening and a net is being thrown over it, or a pestilence or a plague. That actually can be translated epidemic here. This has to do with those unforeseen things, those unforeseen dangers where the strong are just as vulnerable as the weak, that we do not see coming. And friends, I know that you know the threat of sickness, the threat of chronic pain, those anxious moments after you receive the bad test results. But I've also sat with you and heard you say that what's not, it's not as bad to hear the bad test results. It's when you don't know yet and you're waiting to hear. And that threat that goes on inside of you whenever you're waiting to hear, what is the doctor's report going to say? Even there, even there, we take shelter in the shade of the Almighty. For verse 3, he delivers. And verse 4, he covers. Look with me at verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions, with his feathers. Under his wings, you will find refuge. And his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. These are familiar images in Scripture. His faithfulness is like the shelter of wings of a bird over their young, like a shield and a wall. A buckler there can also be translated rampart. The idea here of a shield is that there's an immediate and a personal protection. And a wall being a corporate or a surrounding protection. Do you, say, do you feel that? A sense of individual protection as well as corporate and surrounding protection. The shelter of his wings, a shield and a wall around you. Verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. By night, those unseen, unknown fears they keep you awake at night. Arrows, those known and hostile things that are coming your way. Verse 6, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Let's pause here for a second and look at this word, these words, pestilence and destruction. Pestilence here is deber, the Hebrew word deber, and this destruction or uh, overwhelming heat is ketev. When, you, when we look at this, yes, these are regular nouns that speak to things like sickness and like destruction. But what's deeper behind here is that Deborah actually referred to one of the pantheon of Canaanite deities that surrounded Israel. These Canaanite gods that the Canaanites, the pagan nations around them would attribute the things that were happening in the world. So pestilence was Deborah, the god of sickness, that Moat, the god of death, would send out to do his bidding. What's interesting is that Psalm 91, when in archaeological digs and findings in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they've actually found snippets of Psalm 91 included with prayers against demonic forces, against evil spirits. So much so that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born, destruction here was actually translated as evil spirit or demon. Psalm 91 carries with it a heavy sense of spiritual warfare. 
that we might not notice when we first look at it. Lots of sermons have been preached on Psalm 91 in a pandemic. When you go through and you look, recent sermons, you see people pulling this up because it includes pestilence twice and the word plague a couple of times as well. But there's something more going on here for the original readers than what we would think of. Sickness and death, pandemic, epidemic. And we'll see this reason even more clear that this, this psalm has to do with spiritual warfare when we see Satan himself refer to it when talking to Jesus. We'll come to that in just a minute. So we have arrows, we have shields. Think of all of this, spiritual warfare, arrows and shields in light of Ephesians chapter 6. Do you remember it? We are told to put on the armor of God. Why? In order to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, spiritual forces. Friends, do you remember why we take up the shield of faith from Ephesians chapter 6? With which we can extinguish the fiery darts, the fiery arrows of the evil one. There was a Canaanite deity, Reshef, who was supposedly an archer. The fiery darts of the evil one. And the image here in verse 5, the arrow that flies by day, reminds me of a, a scene in a movie, and I won't even validate the movie by giving you the name of it. Okay? But let's just suffice to say it's an ancient battle um, where the antagonists, the bad guys, tell the protagonists, our arrows will blot out the sun. And in the battle... They're, they're fighting, and all of a sudden, they hear a noise. They turn and they look, all these warriors with shields. And arrows are, so many arrows are flying from enemy lines that it actually does cause shade and a shadow over them. And they have no choice but to stand underneath their shields. And their shields are pelted so that they're covered in arrows. And not only their shields, but the ground all around them. Friends, in that scenario, is the warrior safe in any way? No, not at all completely surrounded, completely under attack. This is not a good situation. However, is the soldier, is the warrior given sufficient means in the moment? Sufficient protection for the moment? Yes. That's the imagery that we get in this psalm. It's not that these things will not attack. It's not that you will never be under threat. It's not that you will never experience threat and violence and danger and sickness, but that you will be guarded and you are given means in the moment to sustain. Does that make sense? That is good news for us. We are given protection that is sufficient for the moment and guarded by our Savior. Our God, Yahweh, the one true God, taunts at these lesser gods, these false gods, these evil spirits. At VBS, we just went through and talked about Baal. That's one that we're familiar with, Baal. We covered the life of Elijah at VBS. We might not be as familiar with these lesser-known Canaanite gods. But it's interesting that in Hosea 13, 14, where Paul references it later and says, O oh, death, where is your sting? He's saying, O oh, moat, where is your deborah? He's mocking them. You have no power over my people. I am the one true God. You cannot touch them. You cannot touch them. So friends, this means God may not change your circumstances. 
He may not prevent disaster, but moment by moment, you are sustained and protected from attacks of the evil one, from attacks of this world, and also from attacks from your own soul, your own sinful soul, as the old man inside of you is at war with the new man. As the flesh is at war with the spirit within you, which is imagery that we're given in Scripture. One commentator says this, the Lord gives us security from both the natural and the supernatural causes of fear. The Lord is there with us. Let's look at verse seven and eight. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. This final image that we receive here is this threat of war. The promise is not that the fight will not rage, but that ultimately the children of God will see evildoers compensated. That justice will be done for the people of God. So through battles, arrows, sickness, death, terror, these things will all be close, but they will not be ultimate and they will not be final for those who belong to the one true God. And like we saw in Psalm 88, when Brian preached on the dark night of the soul, nothing will touch us in life or in death that does not first pass through the Lord's hands. Let me say that again. Nothing can touch us in life or in death that does not pass through the Lord's hands. The Psalm thus far urge us to take shelter in God's shadow. But if this is shelter, can you imagine the alternative? If this is safety, how can we have what it takes to take this kind of shelter? When danger is near, we must take courage in the cross. Take courage in the cross. Let's look at verses 9 through 16. Verse 9 and 10. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. At first glance, this may seem to promise invincibility, that you would be untouchable to danger and trouble. But from the context of verses 8, 1 through 8, this is very much unlikely. And we know from Job and we know from Jesus himself that those who are beloved of God, the children of God, can and do experience difficulty and destruction and disaster at no fault of their own, not due to their own sin. The righteous beloved of God can experience disaster. So how do we make sense of this? Scripture often uses plague here to speak of a covenant curse. Plague as a covenant-breaking consequence, a judgment against against Israel. Consequently, this is not a promise that nothing bad will happen to Israel, but that God will never turn away from those who are hiding in his shadow. Do you see the difference? God will never turn away from his covenant people, those who are hiding in his shadow. And this kind of sweeping grand promise is reflected elsewhere and even in the New Testament, right? Romans 8, 28, those who love God, all things work together for good and are those who are called according to his purpose. And then a few verses later, that's 8.28, jump ahead to verse 35. What does that actually look like? 
all things working together, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. The point is not will, what will or will not happen. The point is that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That is the point. We're not to focus on what will or will not happen to us, but that nothing, whether in life or in death, can separate us from the love of God. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Wilson just read this from Luke chapter 4. It also appears in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness temptation of Jesus. Satan wants Jesus to put his own glory on display. Throw yourself off the temple because you know this promise is for you. Angels will come. Remember Psalm 91, the context is angels and demons. That's on purpose. And Jesus says, you don't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Exodus 23 and Hebrews chapter 1 give us an idea that God can and will use the heavenly host, the angels, to care for the Lord's anointed. But notice how Satan intentionally misuses that. Rather than calling on angelic help for sustaining help given as a free gift, he tempts Jesus to call on the angels for his own glory out of arrogance. This is antithetical to the motivation of what Jesus says later in the Gospels. Listen to Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 52. Jesus says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus says, I can do this. That violence is not the way. That the angels are on call for me, guarding and sustaining me. That's Jesus's motivation. So when we read of angelic help against demonic threat, we have no choice but to take courage, friend. The fallen angel is rendered powerless with each of the three words of Jesus that Wilson read for us in Luke chapter 4. And from our perspective, I want you to imagine an angel coming to your aid. Described figuratively in the prophets and in Revelation. There's a reason angels say do not fear the first time they show up anywhere. Because if you were to see one, your first thought would be, I'm going to die. Their fierce loyalty and power is directed at Christ and for all those who belong to him. Hell cannot stand against Christ and his church. Hell cannot stand against you. But maybe this is none of your concern. Maybe the thought of spiritual warfare rarely enters into your mind. Rarely we think of the reality of Satan's lies and his work and his, his power in this world. It's been said that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And in Christian history, we typically fall in one of two poles, right? We either give him too much credit, we give Satan too much credit as if he's some kind of equal power with God. He's not. Or we don't give him any credit at all and live as if his threats are not real. 
Psalm 91 and Luke 4 remind us that spiritual warfare is very real, while at the same time reassuring us that though there is real danger, you are preserved and carried along and lifted up. You are lifted up. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. I often joke that I'm carried along by coffee and the Holy Spirit, and that's the only thing getting me through, right? But what if... I am actually sustained in spiritual ways of which I am unaware, thinking that I'm going along in my own strength. What if that reframes the way I see prayer? Perhaps we should think about prayer and spiritual warfare more like grabbing the back of the seat when we're teaching our children to ride their bikes. From the child's perspective, a fall is the worst that could ever happen. But from a parent's perspective, we know that we're preparing them for joy. And we've got them. And we are carrying them along. Teaching them to swim while holding the back of the floaties. And their little arms are just a flailing. But they're being carried along in ways they are unaware. Calvin, speaking on this verse, again says, And though God suffers us to stumble and fall in this manner, that he may convince us how weak we are in ourselves... Yet, inasmuch as he does not permit us to be crushed or altogether overwhelmed, it is virtually even then as if he put his hand under us and bore us up. That's the kind of spiritual support and sustaining grace that the Lord is giving us moment by moment by moment. Look with me at verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. How convenient. Surely it was an accident that Satan forgot to cite that verse. He only quotes 11 and 12 to Jesus. He doesn't quote verse 13. If he quotes verse 13, he is acknowledging his defeat. Promise in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. I'm sure that was an accident. No. Satan will be defeated. The cobra, the serpent, the dragon. Believer, you need to know that the serpent is as, was as good as crushed, no less in Genesis chapter 3, as he is at the cross and the resurrection, or as he will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's the point? Satan is crushed. You have power. But it's not about that. He's speaking to the disciples here, his apostles. The point is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And you take comfort in that. In life and in death, nothing can hurt you. Whether it's internal, external, or spiritual danger. We, like we see in Revelation 22, Satan is like a chained dog for us. Still dangerous, but severely limited. Subject to the sovereign and current reign of Jesus. Satan is and was and will be defeated. And we take courage in that. But what's wonderful in that this psalm does not end there. That is good news for us. That Satan is as good as dead. Does not end there. 
though. At the end of Psalm 91, we receive a direct pledge from God himself. The psalm shifts, and it's like the psalmist yields the mic to God himself, and God speaks. A direct pledge from God. God speaks and commends a man or a king, a daring person of war who has escaped a violent death. And yes, a daring man did face threat. He did face the reality of separation and violence and faced it with courage. And by way of union, those who belong to him as well. There was a man who faced death, who faced courage, who had courage in the face of death and all those who are united to him by faith. So how do we face danger? We face danger in Christ. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. With Satan's defeat in view, God affirms and specifies what it means to trust him. When we are threatened, when danger is near, what does it look like? How do we take shelter? God here gives us three ways that we lean into this kind of trust. Knowing everything to be true that we just covered, how do we lean into trust? Verses 14 through 16 tell us to cling to God in love, know God by name, and call to God in hope. Cling to God in love, know God by name, and call to him in love. First, cling to God in love. Verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. Deliverance comes to those who hold fast. This word has to do with attachment. It has to do with holding fast, being joined together. Like my daughter clung tightly to me when we were watching the fireworks show at Smithville Stadium and she was shocked at the first mortar blast. She clings to me and she's terrified. Like my, well, my wife held her, hands in her, her head in her hands and said, the boom boom is over there. You are safe. Do you know that you're safe? And through tears, she nods her head. She did not feel safe at all. But our touch and our words reassured her that she was okay. And she clung to us, terrified, until she finally realized, I am safe. And then she enjoyed the rest of the fireworks show. Beloved child of God, you are attached to your father. Scottish hymn writer Horatius Bonar wrote, Cling to the mighty one. Cling in thy grief. Cling to the holy one. He gives relief. Cling to the gracious one. Cling in thy pain. Cling to the faithful one. He will sustain. Cling to the crucified. Jesus, the lamb who died. Cling to the crucified. Jesus, the king. Friends, take courage in the cross by clinging to the crucified. Cling to the crucified. So first, cling to God in love. Second, know God by name. Look back with me quickly at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist uses four different names for God very intentionally. Most High, Yahweh, El Shaddai, and my God. As the Most High, he cuts down to size any threat, any false God that would stand against him. As Almighty, El Shaddai, he is God to the homeless. As Yahweh, he is God with us. And as my God, 
The general is made particular by that personal pronoun, my God. He is not just God, believer. He is your God. In verse, in verse 14, he pledges his protection to his anointed and those who are united to him by faith. Finally, call to God in hope. Verse 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue and honor him. Verse 15 assures us that he will answer. How will he answer? Well, maybe not on our terms. But here we're, we see eight expressions of God's safekeeping. What are the specific ways that God keeps his anointed safe? Deliverance, protection, presence in trouble, rescue, honor, long life, satisfaction, salvation. These are written down in your bulletin in the discussion questions and the sermon questions for you to meditate on. What does it mean that God protects me in this way? It is with this courage and shelter that Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this courage and this shelter comes to us in the final word of God. God speaks at the end of the psalm. The psalmist speaks, reassures us, but then God speaks. God speaks. As one Old Testament scholar notes, it is the ground of our confidence that the last word is spoken not by us, but to us. It is the ground of our confidence that the final word is spoken not by us, but to us. Friend, it is of value for you to tell your story. But it is of more value. You do not only need that. You need to have God speak his story as your story over you. And we have a God who sings this song of hope over us. Who sings, we have a God who delights over us with singing and tells us what is true about us. Christ was, is, and will be victorious over Satan in the resurrection when Satan fell like lightning, when his head was crushed, when he is bound in chains, whatever metaphor we receive through Scripture about Satan's destruction, the point is clear. Jesus has the final word. And as we were reminded in Psalm 88 last week, that darkness does not have the final word here, neither does the threat of danger. Darkness does not have the final word. Threat does not have the final word. Jesus has the final word in redeeming all of creation. Jesus has the final word over your sin. Jesus has the final word over your shame. Jesus has the final word over all the evil forces of this world and Satan himself. Jesus has the final word over the evils and injustices done to you and done through you. Jesus has the final word over your diagnosis, over the bad news. He has the final word. Jesus has the final word. When your fearful, anxious heart brings sleepless nights, when your thoughts are on repeat with those troubling things in your heart, mind, body, and soul, remember, Jesus has this final word. He has spoken, and he will speak once and for all. Beloved, if you are threatened today, waging an internal war or suffering the threat of violence, sit in his shelter. So that you can rest in his shadow. 
He covers you with His final word. Let's pray. Almighty Yahweh, Most High, our God, Lord, assure us by your word today that nothing will touch us in life or in death that does not first pass through your hands. Apply these things to our heart. Reassure us when we doubt. Help us when we are weak. Help us in our unbelief. Thank you for these dear people. I pray, Lord, that you would lift them up, that you would sustain them. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen.